1: This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. This is James Altucher. I have Dan Ariely on the phone, author of Predictably Irrational, The the Honest Truth About Dishonesty, and The Upside of Irrationality. All of these subjects, Dan, I'm totally an expert on, having been completely irrational and dishonest for most of my life. So welcome to the show.
0: Uh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
1: So so Dan, what I kind of so so you you're you came at a lot of these issues, um irrational thinking, um, the honest truth about dishonesty. You come at it from a huge academic point of view. You did all this research, you uncovered all the ways we figure or many of the ways we we think irrationally. But I want to kind of also look and explore the upside of irrationality in a sense, how can the listeners take advantage of the fact that they that we all think irrationally to improve their lives by maybe thinking more rationally and also maybe take advantage of the fact that other people, no matter what, are going to be mostly thinking irrationally. So so what are some of the ways we, we think irrationally that you cover in your book?
0: So there are many ways in which we, we think irrationally. Uh, probably the best one to think about as a starting point is emotions. So think about the, uh, how emotions work. Um, emotions are about, uh, evoked by something from the outside. And once they get started, they basically create an action plan that you almost have to follow. Um, and you can see why emotions in this way are reasonable to have. So, for example, imagine that you're an animal in the jungle uh, 10,000 years ago, and all of a sudden you see a tiger. What do you want to do? Do you want to start thinking about the cost and benefit, Hmm. running versus staying? No, you want to start running as fast as possible. And that's what emotions do, is you see something, it evokes an emotion, and then you just get an action plan that says, run as fast as you can. Now today we don't have tigers anymore, but we still have emotions, and they still control us in many, in many ways. Um, and and the reason it's good to think about emotions this way is because you see how they are beneficial, even if they're not uh, optimal.
1: Well, well, and, and Dan, let me ask: like it, it there also were probably more cases where we irrationally ran. So even in the jungle, if we just heard the leaves rustling in an unusual way, we might irrationally think. It was a tiger and we'd start running because, you know, that was a better way to protect ourselves in general rather than wait to confirm that it was a tiger.
0: That, that's right. And, and you can see how this is also sensible, right? Because you might make mistakes from time to time, but the cost of running when there's no tiger is the cost of running. The cost of staying when there is a tiger is a very high cost. Right. Right. So, so, so it's not the, necessarily
1: irrational, although short term, it might seem irrational.
0: So, so this is a question of how we think about rationality and irrationality. So, it's certainly a mistake uh, in in terms of thinking about the particular action, but you could see how it is sensible. Um, so, so emotions or uh, emotions in general are kind of good rules of thumbs for how to behave. You know, a long time ago. Um, but even, uh, but they're not necessarily correct for each individual time that you that you behave. And rationality, uh, you would need something that is actually accurate every time. Um, but but that's that's just emotion. Let's just switch to another example. Uh, think about something like money. Uh, money is a re- I, I think about money
1: all the time. So this is a good example. <laughs>
0: uh, money is a relatively new invention. Uh, it's actually uh, difficult to think about money. So what what is money all about? Money is all about opportunity cost, right? Every time you do one thing, you're giving up the opportunity to do something else. You buy a cup of coffee, you're not going to do something else. Um, you're buying a car, you're not going to do something else. So we, we went a while ago to a Toyota a car dealership, and we asked people, we said, what would happen uh, if you go ahead and buy this car today? What would you not be able to do? And people had no answer. Why? Because they never thought about it. But then we pushed them and we said, look, something would have to give, what would give? And the most people told us was that if they're going to buy a Toyota, they can't buy a Honda. So people gave us a substitution within the same time frame in the same product category What we would have wanted people to say is that this would be three weeks of vacation over the next three years and 200 lattes and 70 books and so on. So the thing with money is that money is a really interesting uh, invention. It's an amazing invention. It advances society in many ways, right? We can specialize. We can save. Lots Lots of wonderful things happen because we have money. But at the same time, it's hard for us to think about money. And because it's hard for us to think about it the right way, We think about it the wrong way and we make lots of
1: mistakes. uh, I I think, you know, because money is such a, a relatively recent invention, a lot of the examples actually in Predictably Irrational, it seems to me sort of refer to the fact that it's hard for us to value things based on supply and demand and a lot of irrational thinking involves what's the difference between where we value something and where supply and demand would value something and this is extremely useful for like marketing and sales for instance that's, uh, that's, that's
0: uh, exactly the, the point so and, and I'll give you the following example uh, just just to think about um, imagine that you're coming to to try to park and you find an empty parking meter and you park your car and you're trying to uh, park and you you don't have a quarter and I pass by and I say you say excuse me do you have a quarter and I say yes I have a quarter uh, but I'll tell you what I want a dollar 50 for this quarter or I want a dollar for this quarter you know uh, would you give it to me or would you say uh, I'll I'll take my risk I will uh, risk it and see if I can uh, not get a ticket most people say I'm not going to overpay you I'll take I'll take the risk case number 2 is the same thing I pass by you ask me if I have a quarter and I say, look, I don't have a quarter, but there's a bank uh, three blocks down the street. I'll run as fast as I can to this bank. I will get uh, a quarter for you. I will run as fast as I can ba- back. But if I do this, I would like you to pay me uh, a dollar for my for my trouble. And now most likely you would say, great, it's a, it's a great deal. You get somebody to run uh, three blocks down, three blocks back for you for, for only 75 cents. Now... The reality is that in both cases, what you're getting is a quarter for a dollar, but in the case where I run, you feel like it's a good deal. In the case where I just say, give it to you and charge you, you feel like you've been gouged. And you can think about this as a good example of something that is not about the value of what we're getting. It's about how do we come to evaluate it. And something that comes up to evaluation by knowing how much effort went into it is evaluated in a much higher way.
1: Can I can I ask Dan? Could this be explain? By the way, let,
0: let me before we do this. Let me just give you mm-hmm. some advice. <clears throat> now, now think about your show, right? If you want people to evaluate this in a in a higher way, what would you have to do? If you think about the lesson from this uh, example from parking, uh, you would have to basically for people to realize how hard you're working on this, right? How much effort you've put into it how much time it takes you to, to, book, your, to book your guest and read what they're working on and think about it and prepare everything. And that would create a much higher evaluation of the final outcome.
1: That's a very good description, actually, of how I prepare. Very good. So, so, so let me ask this. Is this. So there's this study where um, these guys sold uh, a bunch of items they bought in garage sales on eBay, and they yeah. sold them for a certain price. And then they um, bought the same batch of items, and they sold them again on eBay. But this time they put a story under each one, uh, kind of describing how they got the item, what, you know, the history of the item, and so on. And the, the they, they got, you know, on the eBay auction system, basically the price was about three times higher, uh, the final sale. So that, would you say uh, so this that, is related so this, to
0: that? So this... This is a story about, uh, this is a study by uh, uh, Rob Walker, and what Rob did was he uh, went on eBay and he bought some uh, real junk. He bought stuff, I think, for, in general, for less than than $5. Some things were even $0.30 and $0.50 and so on, and then he got some some, uh, people to write stories about them, and then... Uh, res re- resold them on, on eBay. And the, the amount was, was amazingly different. So, for example, there was a particular little um, plastic gun that he bought for $56, and later on he sold it for $36. So there was a particular uh, li- little something that you put on your desk that he bought for $1.49 and sold for 56 There were things that he... Uh, it was just tremendously different. There was a, a little statue of a rhinoceros that he bought for a dollar and sold it for 57 The, the whole thing was incredible. Um, but this was about the fact that what we're consuming at the end of the day is not just the item in question. The consumption experience is actually very complex. And um, we, we're consuming stuff from our minds at the moment of consumption. We're consuming a story. We're consuming our belief. We're consuming a, a sense of justice. Imagine two worlds. In one world, you are uh, sitting by your computer and drinking g- grape juice, and you're working very hard, and you're focusing on your work. In the second one, you're sitting in Napa Valley in one of those um wine tasting rooms and somebody is telling you about the aroma and the grapes and the soil and the sun and when it was picked and so on and you're drinking the same uh, grape juice from a small cup and you uh, swirl it around and you smell it and so on those are not the same experiences right those are those are vastly different experiences and it's because we're not experiencing just the taste on our mouth We're, we're experiencing something very different from that
1: so so it's interesting. So so when you add story, when you kind of document the process of let's say the creation of a product or what I'm going to do to provide you a service or whatever, that almost justifies charging more. It it kind of increases the demand and the supply and demand equation, even though that might be irrational because the outcome's the same.
0: Uh, that's right, and and you know it, it's a question of what, what do you mean by, by justified justified is a, a is a complex uh, question about you know your your sense of justice and and so on, but there's no question that a story changes the experience. So if you say what do people get from a cup of coffee that they don't know nothing about it versus what are they getting from a cup of coffee that they have a story around it, the story one does give people more pleasure. It's actually more valuable.
1: Well, you know, here's another example. Let's say I buy one of your books on your website. You sell me directly uh, the book. Or I can go to Amazon and uh, uh, buy the buy your book there. Uh, and maybe I even pay more because I'm paying for shipping or whatever. It turns out that people are much more likely to buy on a, a trusted site like Amazon than buy on your site where they don't necessarily know even though you're you know a well-known person and professor and trusted they don't somehow amazon is a more trusted site just because it sells billions of products and yes, so, so people are more likely to buy there
0: yeah and and there's other things about that right so so i'm not sure if people would <clears throat> uh, uh trust me less than amazon that i'm you know a person of my word but um there's other parties involved right there's speed of shipping uh, there's expertise in shipping there's what do you do with if something gets damaged and i think people should trust amazon more than me maybe not um n- not in terms of you know if i promise something i would probably do my best to do it and amazon would uh you know m- may- maybe our reputation but the thing is that um buying a product and shipping it requires lots of other parties as well and the question is which one of us me or amazon has more control over the shipping services and of course the answer is amazon Uh, which one of us knows how to deal better with mistakes it's probably amazon so i think people should trust amazon to a higher degree so amazon by the virtue of doing it a lot and dealing with third parties a lot has gotten very, very good at this. So so the, when you say trust, there's a question of you trust who for what. Also, I think that people should trust me to a high degree that I know what I'm talking about when I talk about behavioral economics, uh, but people should necess- not necessarily trust me when I come to talk about wine or talk about pens or something else.
1: Although it's funny, uh, you know, often I think, a source of irrational thinking of an, for an individual is if you're good at one thing, people have a tendency to think that they're good at many things. So you see people, for instance, who, who and this has happened to me, you get wealth in one area of your life and then you suddenly start investing in the stock market and you lose everything. Yeah. So 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 how do people how do people kind of uh, get more rational in their thinking?
0: So, sadly, there's no single answer for that, right? There's lots of ways to be irrational and there's no one way to, to fix it because the, the, what rationality demands from us is to think very deeply, very thoroughly all the time in a way that is really, really hard to accomplish. So, um, there are all kinds of mechanisms to try and think in a, in a better way. So, let's take some mistakes that people uh, make. Um, one mistake could be texting while driving. You know, and uh, lots of people text and drive, it's clearly an incredibly stupid thing to do. Uh, you're likely to kill yourself, you're likely to kill other people, get injury. I mean, it's just it's just a terrible thing to do, but people do it all the time. And you can say, how do we behave better? Um, can we uh, get people to learn more about it? And once they would learn about it, they would realize it's a mistake and stop doing it. Well, that's not going to be the case. The The barrier... In texting and driving is not that we don't have uh, the right information. That's not where the barrier is coming from.
1: And right, because we all know on, it's bad.
0: That's right, and and the barrier the barrier there is that uh, the phone is there and it is tempting. So when the phone is tempting, you know we misbehave. So what's the what's the right solution there? The right solution is to basically create something that doesn't let people. Get to their phones, right? So if you basically said, okay, I'm going to turn off my phone every time I go into the car, or I will put my phone in the trunk or in the back seat, <clears throat> the, if the phone is going to vibrate next to you or ring next to you, the temptation is too high and very few people would be able to resist this, right? This is equivalent to me coming to your office every day of the year and uh, covering your desk every morning uh, with hot donuts. You know, what are the odds that after doing this for a year, you would not weigh more? The odds are very, very low. You'll be very tempted lots of the time and most likely misbehave in a bad way. So when it comes to temptation, the right way to try and fight it is not to assume that we can overcome temptation, but to basically reduce the prevalence of temptation in our lives. So that's that's one direction, right? And you can think about lots of personal lessons. You can say, okay, maybe I should just stop having cookies at home because if I have cookies, I will just eat too many. Maybe it's okay to eat a cookie from time to time, but if I have a whole box at home, most likely I will mis misbehave. There's another um, element which has to do with habits. So habits are nature's way of getting us not to think about things every time, but to create a, a method of dealing with with something and um, so for example you could say what kind of good habits can i create think about something like tooth brushing right you don't think every day oh is this a good time to brush my teeth not a good time should i do it today not you just get into the habit <clears throat> that says this is something good um people who exercise don't think every day should i exercise not they get into a habit people who write uh, for example, it's really easy if you get into a habit that says you get into the office every day, and the first hour you do is you just write and you don't do anything else uh, before that. So, 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 so let's take you... that
1: example. How do you, um, how, how do you focus, at least initially, in the initial stages of building the habit, how do you make sure you're not kind of checking <coughs> Facebook or email or whatever?
0: Yeah, so... So actually, uh, of course, you know the goal of Facebook and email and so on is to tempt you all the time, and you have to resist temptation. In the beginning, it's going to be uh, very tough. So I think if you said to yourself, oh, this is how I'm going to behave forever, this is going to be very, very tough to do. But if you said, okay, I'm just going to commit to doing this for a short while, maybe for six weeks, that's actually a little easier because you realize it's within your, your grasp. So what I would do... Um, if we just take this example, is I would look at my calendar, and I would schedule time for writing. I would schedule for time for writing, and then I would take the distractions like Facebook and email, and I would schedule time for them. Because right mm-hmm. now, because we don't schedule time for Facebook and, and email, we do it every moment that nothing else is scheduled. But that's not that's not the right thing. So I would say, you know, from eight to nine thirty, I'm I'm writing from nine thirty to. 10 I'm doing email from 10 to 10:15 10, I'm doing Facebook or something like that and now that I've scheduled it it is more clear to me that if I'm doing it in the other time I'm not doing what I've intended to do so that's that's the kind of things I would I would try but but so that's very that's very
1: interesting because you're saying don't assume you could just automatically be rational but actually schedule times for yourself to be irrational so in this case schedule times for the distractions
0: uh, the schedule time for the distraction first of all you know I don't want people to live uh, you know just just a life of misery right you have to have some fun in life and you know if people enjoy Facebook and talking to other people that that's okay but the idea is that once you schedule time for Facebook you know if you're doing Facebook in the amount that you planned or above that and um, one of the big lessons by the way from from social science in general and behavior economics is that the environment matters that we behave as a function of the environment that we're in, so if we have an environment that supports good behavior we'll behave well, and if it's an environment that uh, points us into bad behavior we'll behave poorly so the The trick is really to to ask the question of how do we create an environment where, where we're likely to behave to behave well, and the calendar could be part of it, how you set up your kitchen can be part of it, how do you set up your day, and so on. All of those are components of this.
1: But, you know, also, so this this kind of um, verges on self-help a little bit, but there's that saying, you know, you're the average of the uh, five people you spend the most time with. So if you're going to hang out with, let's say, all people who are weigh uh, more than you, then chances are you're going to gain weight also. Um.
0: Yeah, so, so uh, we, we do look um, there's a very nice uh, stream of research uh, on what's called social proof and social proof is the idea that we look at the behavior of other people around us and we look at their behavior as a guideline for what is acceptable uh, behavior and what's interesting about that, uh, that research is that both it's very important but also that we don't necessarily intuit how it how it works. So let me give you an example. So this is research by Noah Goldstein and his colleague, and they went to a group of people that live outside of LA, and we said, look, imagine that we had three ways to try and get people to stop using energy. We could tell them either this is something that you should do because it will save you money, or we could tell them this is something that you should do because it's good for the environment, Or we could tell them this is something you should do because it's good, um, because everybody else is doing it. So we could say money, environment, everybody else is doing it. And they asked people, what do you think would work? If you were going to predict which one of those would work, what do you think would work? And people said, I personally would be influenced by the environmental appeal because that's the mm-hmm. kind of person I am, a kind of a wonderful person who cares about the environment. My neighbors, they would be influenced by the money appeal because that's the kind of people they are. And nobody, nobody, nobody would care about uh, what everybody else is doing. So mm-hmm. people had the theory that it's all about uh, what, what we are, uh, or either the environment – uh, or, or saving the environment, or, or get it, saving money. Uh, what actually happened? Well, they did that study. They actually waited three months and they ran the study when a third of the people got one, the second, or the third. And the only thing that matters what, was what everybody else was doing. So what's interesting here is that um, what everybody else is doing is incredibly important. We are very sensitive. We're very much herding animals. But we don't really predict that. We don't understand the extent to which we follow other people's uh, behavior. We think that we are working according to reasons. So I say, what what really motivates you? What really drives you? And you say, oh, I'm the kind of person who thinks deeply and you know, contemplates things and so on. And it could be either by these reasons or these reasons or these reasons. Um, but we don't understand that many of our decisions are actually driven <clears throat> not by reasons by by reaction to all kinds of things including uh what other people are doing
1: so it's it's interesting because you you've given so far two very valuable sales techniques one is to sort of tell the story of the process or some story about your product or service and that sort of drives up conceptually somehow the price in the buyer's mind and the other thing is is Social proof uh, is this sort of her- herd behavior. So, so from from an evolutionary point of view, caring for animals is also a relatively new invention of the human species, as well as as you point out, money saving money is a a, a relatively new invention. But but c- traveling with the herd is three million years old.
0: Uh, that's that's right. And and you know it's it's often it's often a good strategy, right? You could say, well, you know, um, not it's not always the case that other people know best, but from time to time, other people do know something. So in general, it is a good it is a good strategy.
1: Well, and if you didn't if 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 you, if you didn't travel with the herd, you might be left behind when the when the wolves show up. Yeah, that's right. So 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 for millions of years, it was a great strategy, and now it may or may not be a good strategy because the world's changed, but it's like an evolutionary blip. I- I'm wondering how much the overlap is between behavioral science and, like, evolutionary psychology.
0: Um, sorry, say it again?
1: Uh, I wonder how big the overlap is uh, between behavioral science and evolutionary psychology, because it seems like so, 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 you so can the, explain the, the, things the both ways.
0: Issue, <clears throat> so, so, look, there's no reason, that there's no question that we are a function of our evolutionary history so the, the this is of course uh of course the the uh, obvious uh but but the question of evolutionary psychology and behavioral economics there there are some differences between them so evolutionary psychology is very much concerned with finding the evolutionary reasons for a particular behavior and proving that those indeed are the are the reasons and of course um everything we do has an evolutionary uh a history to it but but behavioral economics is not assuming that we can always identify it. You know one of the the things about evolutionary psychology is that many times it 's hard to prove particular particular points, so you know Darwin had lots of finches, and you could look at sixteen different finches and look at the width of their beak and so on. With people, we have only one one type basically, so because of that it 's very hard for us to in kind of a scientifically satisfying way to say that we can actually track a particular behavior to um, to evolutionary reason. We can say that the story is consistent with an evolutionary reason, but we can't really track it back. So, you know, we can talk about money and we can say, well, you know, there's probably no reason for us to have developed any mechanisms that deal with, with money, uh, but but we can't prove it because we don't have another... Uh, human being that was developed uh, with money, and we don't have two million years to wait until we have uh, more money in our history, and so on. So, so evolutionary psychology um, is, is an incredibly important field, but there are many things that are hard to test empirically in that in that particular field.
1: So, so uh, you know, I want to I want to switch directions just a little bit because it's also going to be related to. Sales, but if you don't mind, I'd like to talk about your personal story, if that's okay. Sure. So, so, how did you? Why don't you describe how you kind of got into this area of uh, behavioral science? Because I, I think the, the, the secret origin story of our of our superheroes is always uh, fascinating to people.
0: Uh, so, um, I'm not sure how fascinating it is, but um, but I was I was burned very badly. Many years ago, and I spent how, how old time. were you? I was I was uh, almost 18, and I was uh, burning about 70 percent of my body, and I spent about three years in hospital. And hospitals are, um, I think of them as magnifying glass for uh, human uh, irrationality and stupidity. You know, there's lots of lots of terrible behaviors happen in in hospital, um, and and. Uh, I, I learned a lot uh, during that time. I, I learned how to think about pain and placebos and behavior and procedures and all kinds of things. But the thing that troubled me the most on those days was the question of bandage removal. So imagine you were a patient and somebody was in charge of taking your bandages off. And there were two basic strategies. They could rip the bandages off quickly, one after the other or they could take them off slowly the ripping approach would create tremendous momentary pain but the uh, duration in total would be lower versus the, the slow ripping approach would take a long time but you will not have the same intensity and the question is which one of those is better so somebody had to take my bandages off every every day which one of those is better and the nurses believed in the quick ripping approach they thought that this would create the lowest total amount of pain that if you basically took, um, you know, uh, let's say half as much time, even if it was much more painful, that was a better approach, and and therefore that's what they chose uh, to do. And I, I didn't like that approach, and I was trying to argue with them, but, you know, they were in charge, and they did what they thought was best. And then years later, when I started studying at the university, I decided to test this. And the way I tested it was I would bring people to the lab, and I would hurt them in different ways for different durations and profiles and intensities. And what I found was that the nurses were wrong. What I found was that, in fact, people don't incorporate the duration that much into their experience. You can take an experience, make it twice as long. You don't make it twice as painful. You take an experience, you make it a little bit more intense. Now you make it much more experienced. So the nurses were wrong in a systematic and predictable way. Because they were focusing on minimizing the duration, and they should have focused on minimizing the intensity. And if you think about this, th- these are wonderful individuals with with nothing but good intentions, that were nevertheless getting things wrong for every <clears throat> every patient. And they were doing it while thinking that they are serving their patient, uh, but they were doing it because their gut intuitions were wrong. Right? There was something inside of them that told them that the right approach is is the ripping approach, and they kept on following that internal uh, representation. So so I, from that point on, I started thinking about all kinds of cases in which we think we know what's, what's right, we think we know what's the best thing to do for our clients, our patients, whatever, but in fact our intuitions are are wrong, our intuitions are not leading us in the right way, And and because of that, even though we have good... Uh, intentions we end up doing lots and lots of mistakes.
1: So, so can I can I ask two things one is it seems like The reverse is also true about I mean we're, we're the same thing is true about happiness So for instance, I can go to a, a movie for two hours and I'll be very happy But going to a movie for four hours doesn't make me twice as happy. It make me maybe it'll make me just a little more happy or bored
0: yeah, so so happiness is 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 another one of those uh, domains where people have bad intuitions about what will uh, what what will make them uh, happy, and I think there's lots of things to talk about um, happiness, but um, you know one one way to think about it is to think about um, mountain climbing, and I've, I've used this example before. So if you look at books of uh, famous mountain climbers and you say what did these people write Uh, they they write just about misery right you you look at these mountain climbers and it doesn't seem like there's any uh, moment of happiness in mountain climbing in fact it's all just uh, misery and pain and uh, challenges there's no there's not a single moment that you would say my goodness this person is just is just delighted but nevertheless uh, these people don't go down from the mountain and say, "Oh, this was the worst mistake of my life." No, they go down from the mountain. Uh, they try to recover because it's a dangerous, difficult uh, sport, and then they go up again. and And you say, "Okay, so what? What have we learned about happiness?" You know, these people clearly either either they like misery or something about our definition of happiness is completely wrong. And I think that's actually what's what's happening here: is our definition of happiness is is wrong. Happiness is often not about momentary happiness. Happiness is often about a sense of meaning, and a sense of meaning doesn't come from from regular joy; it comes from something else, including from things that are difficult so if you If you ask the question of you know is is climbing a mountain making people happy not at the moment but after they finish climbing it, it gives them a tremendous amount of satisfaction and reflection on their life in a very, very different way that is actually very important for them. So I do think that when people think about happiness, they have the wrong the wrong view. They don't understand how much of happiness is actually about uh, fulfillment rather than sitting on the sofa drinking beer.
1: Hmm. So, so when you were... Uh, uh going through this experience of all this pain and the uh, dealing with, you know, your whole life changed, obviously. The burn affected not only your body, but your whole life. You were in a hospital for three years. How did you kind of, how did you sort of find meaning um, coming out of the hospital and sort of bounce back as much as you could uh, and, and move forward?
0: So, 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 there were many different uh, stages, but uh, right now, um, I, I find uh, meaning in, in an attempt to try and uh, improve things. So, so I think of myself very much in the business of um, trying to find out mistakes that people make that we could maybe not solve, but improve on. So I, I get exposed to lots of human misery, and um, you know, I look at uh, I look at poverty, and I look at malnutrition, and I look at just the the stupid things we do to each other. I mean, if you look at the world and you ask yourself how much of the bad things that are happening in the world are things that we do to each other, it's really a lot, right? A lot of uh, our misery is self-created. And I basically try to think about, you know, how can we improve a little bit on this? And um, sometimes I uh, talk to individuals and sometimes I... um, I try to do things with government. Sometimes I try to do things with startups. But my, my intention is always to find out where the uh, where mistakes are happening and how can we do to improve it. And, and by the way, when I, when I left the hospital, um, I, I thought of trying to become a physician. So I saw lots of things I didn't like in hospital, and I said, let me try and fix it by becoming a physician. But because my hands are so badly burned, I can't possibly hold a scalpel or... Um, you know, lots of things are difficult for me in that regard.
1: So, so you were 20 years old. Do you think that provided you kind of the meaning in life to, to uplift you? Like, was that an, enough? What, what happened yeah. when you were 20? Uh, yeah. so, so now you clearly have a lot of meaning and direction in your life. What were you thinking in, uh, at 20? Was, was being a physician enough?
0: So, so first of all, when, when, I, when I got injured, I have to say that I had no idea how bad the injury was. So, you know, we all we all get um, burned at some point and I thought, oh, you know, if you get burned then it goes away and I had a little bit more burns and a little deeper, but they'll go away at some point. I didn't understand that uh, deep burns, you know, never go away, right? The, the scar tissue never it's it never you never get back to how you were before and the scars are always, you know, uh, tough and so on. I'm actually going into treatment tomorrow, right? It's been many years and and I'm still uh, things are still are still happening. Um so I, I I think in the beginning I just had no idea of what uh what my future would look like and maybe w- would it was they good. tell you and
1: you wouldn't believe them or would they not tell you?
0: Oh they they just didn't tell me. did mm. tell me. And I, I think it's probably probably for the best that didn't tell me. Um so so for a long time I I really didn't know what to what to expect and that was okay. And then uh, later on I think once I I I got better and I realized what where things were going, I I was actually quite depressed, right? So this was, it was very, very unhappy. Um, and, then, and then when I when I got over that <clears throat> initial part, I think that's the place where I started thinking about, you know, what do I do with my life? And I think that part of it was wanting to have some control. Some of it was wanting not to have other people suffer in the same way, uh, to fix a few things. Uh, but but it certainly wasn't my initial perspective, right? In the beginning, it was just pain. Let me not think about it. Let me distract myself. Let me just think about tomorrow. My life was just consumed with no, nothing big in the beginning. It was just pain. Then it was, okay, it was going to go away. Then it was depression. Then it was uh, trying to help. And, and I tried to uh, become a physician, and only when they prevented me from doing this, I, I found another way. But I didn't think about it that that's going to be my way, but it, this became my way.
1: Because the reason I ask is obviously not everybody goes through what you went through, but everybody goes through something. So let's say an entrepreneur um, fails at their business and their business goes bankrupt and they can't support their family, and they get they're in their own pain and their own depression, you know, and that that's just one example. but uh you know, I wonder in general how people can can you know bounce back. Uh, to find meaning and to to, you know you mentioned helping people was you know in various ways either being a physician or uh, a psychologist or whatever being able to help people was what what ultimately gave you some meaning
0: yeah I think helping is probably one of the easiest ways to find uh, to find meaning I'm I'm not sure it's the you know if you had to make a list of the most useful ones I'm not sure if it's the most um, useful one but I think it's one of the easiest ones uh, because you can actually uh, do something, and you can see the improvement uh, in other people's lives. So I think from that perspective, it is um, relatively uh, relatively easy to uh, to create. Um, I think writing for me was another um, another way to kind of get over things and sort things out. So actually, when I was in grad school. And um, I sat and I wrote a book about my injury, and I, I spent a long time on it. And when I finished, I bounded one copy, and I put it on the shelf, and I never looked at it again. It, I I didn't write it for other people. I wrote it just for myself. But it was incredibly a, a healing process of kind of trying to uh, collect my thoughts. And so, That's so interesting. Think,
1: Why didn't you publish that? Because that obviously would have helped people, too.
0: Um, It, it was... I actually didn't even write it for other people. I really kind of uh, was just kind of uh, write, wrote it more of a, a diary. I never thought about uh, writing it for other people at the time. I just was consumed with all kinds of things in, in my own history and what happened and so on. And I just had the need to kind of try and <clears throat> write it down and sort it out and try to figure out um, all kinds of nuances about my own experience. So... So at that point this was uh, just felt like this was a good thing to do um uh, just just for that I, I actually I haven't uh, looked at it in in forever I'm not even sure if I was any uh, if I wasn't completely useless as a writer at the time so I don't, I don't know um but I did I did write on my blog there's an essay about called um painful lessons that uh, I, I wrote about some lessons I had about life in hospital that I felt um, was something that was useful for people to to read. And I know that lots of people in, a, a lot of nurses in training, for example, told me that they've read this uh, in school and so on. So I, th- I think it's a mix. I think everybody needs to find their own mix of how m- what do you do for just your own sanity and your own understanding of what has happened to you and what do you do in order to try and find meaning outside of yourself. Uh not, there's no there's no easy recipe.
1: You know, I think when you when you talk about uh, pain in, in your books, uh, you 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 bring up quite a bit the placebo effect that even um, if somebody uh, comes to you and says, OK, here's a pill that's going to cure your pain. There is some validity. It actually will make you think for a short period of time that you're you're without pain in some cases.
0: Yeah, and and placebo is really amazing. So um, I I first was introduced to uh, placebo in hospital. So when I was in hospital, um, narcotics were not as good as as they are now. The last 10 years have been tremendous improvements in narcotics. But we would mostly get uh, morphine. And morphine is a great great drug, but you can't give people too much of it for all kinds of reasons. They were also afraid that you will become addicts. So we had a budget of how much morphine we could take, and every day we had the budget, and the doctors and nurses would allow us to decide when we want to take each of the injections. So let's say we could take six injections a day. When, when exactly do we want that? So I, of course, tracked uh, every day how many injections I took and how many I had coming and, you know, thinking about how to, how to space it. But as a slightly obsessive person, I would also track... The other people's uh, uh, injections. So, what other people taking? And, and from time to time, at night, somebody uh, would would scream at night, and the nurse would go and give them an injection, and that person would would quiet down. And uh, sometimes I would realize that this person took more than their first share, so I would call the nurse and I said, you know, this person X, Y, or Z took more, got more than their six injections. I want an extra one too. Why? Why? Why are they getting the extra one? And the first time that this happened, the nurse told me that she just gave that person a placebo, uh, basically an IV fluid, water with some salt, and no real no real medications. And this is shocking because, you know, when you hear about placebo in the way that you and I are talking about it right now, it sounds so uh, distant and, and foreign, but when you're experiencing pain and the people in the room next to you are experiencing just the same intensity of pain, and all of a sudden I tell you that, they got an injection with nothing, and they went to sleep quietly. That's, that's just a shocking experience. But then I read about placebo, and, and placebo is probably the best way to think about the connection between body and mind. So here is what happens with placebo. You get a doctor to give you an injection, and that injection has nothing but IV fluid. But your body, your mind, thinks it's a painkiller. And as a, as a result of that, in preparation, your body starts secreting a substance that is very much like morphine. And so your body actually gets morphine coming from the injection. It's coming from your own, your own body. Now, you can't just close your eyes and say, body, body, please give me some morphine. But the moment the physician injects you with something, you can start producing it. And that's mm-hmm. the amazing thing about, about placebo is that your body is always trying to anticipate the future, and trying to prepare for that future. And placebo is a place where something that actually has nothing in it is changing your expectations, and because of that is changing your physiology.
1: So and you can imagine, what if you knew you were taking a placebo? Would it have a similar uh, effect or no effect at all?
0: So th- there's a recent result that shows that even if people tell you it's a placebo, it still works. Now, we to don't to know the same in- extent? We don't know, we don't know. We know it still works, but nobody did the study that compares uh, the the exact amount that it works and on which people and so on. I think it's fair to say that it will not work to the same extent. So for example, we we showed in some experiments that you know that if people pay more for a placebo, they think it's going to be more effective and therefore it's actually more effective and people pay less for it. They think it will be less effective and because of that it is actually less effective. So expectations do play a, a role, and if you know it's a placebo, your expectation probably get get reduced. So the, the way to think about it is that every time you think that somebody w- something would be effective, there's basically a chance that this will actually become effective.
1: So how can how can I? It's almost like s- s- if I can master self hypnosis or something, I can convince myself. Different actions I take are going to be more effective than they are going to be
0: there's lots of ways to do it um <clears throat> one way uh, one way to do it is to basically give yourself a language about a particular behavior and to make expectation more more salient so uh, think about something as mundane as shaving and ask yourself whether you can make the experience better right if you Start calling it uh, my moment of uh, caring uh, in the morning. uh, It would probably be a better experience if you call it my daily nuisance, right? And if you focus on that and you say to yourself, you know, let me feel about how the 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 razor is uh, cutting the hair and how smooth the shaving cream feels and so on, you will probably do it better. And if you Add some ceremonial elements to this, like a brush or aftershave or something like that. It might also make it more, uh, uh, more, more celebrated, more focused, more attention, uh, and, and probably with uh, higher quality.
1: So, do you think so, like things like affirmations uh, would work? Because that almost sounds like an affirmation. Um, so, what exactly is affirmation? What do, what do you exactly mean by that? Like uh, today, uh, I'm going to be happier. And I tell myself, I look myself in the mirror in the morning. I say, I'm going to have a happy day today.
0: Um, I I am not sure that that would work. I'm not sure that would work. But
1: well, in the same sense, though, so you're saying, uh, My shaving experience is gonna, is is self care. Is better caring for me, so I'm going to be a better person. It's almost a similar thing.
0: So, so I think that the the difference is that um. I think that if you focus on these general things, I'm just going to be happy. I think that's going to be a little hard. But I think that if you focus on particular specific experiences, that's going to be much easier. Hmm, interesting. So I, think, I think that uh, happiness is a little bit too general <clears throat> to uh, just create that. Um, but I think if you say, okay, let me just enjoy this particular candy right now, or let me do something specific, that's going to be... Uh, more likely, so I, I suspect that this is the case
1: it also you know, not... then it sounds related to like mindfulness'm I'm, I'm I'm, 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 I'm more... jewish
0: I'm, I'm an expert in misery, not in happiness
1: <laughs> well okay so let 's talk about honesty and dishonesty so i would I would gather that most people think they're in general honest people, um, but you have some results that suggest otherwise.
0: So first of all, yes, most people think of that they are wonderful, uh, honest individuals. But uh, when you actually ask people, um, when was the last time they lied? They realize that they lie a lot. Um, but uh, but uh, most how people, often do you
1: think people lie per day?
0: Well, I think I think the the best evidence we have is it happens um, about three times a day at least.
1: Uh, like even white lies,
0: including white lies, yeah, yeah. And most people think that most of their lies are white lies and. White lies are, you know, the extreme case of white lies are white lies where they are just for the benefit of somebody else and and they're actually at your expense. Um, But actually, many white lies also help you, right? So um, kind of the classical white lie, honey, how do I look in that dress? Of course, you know, you might say, oh, I'm doing it for that other individual. But the truth is you might be actually doing it for yourself because you don't want to have a... A miserable evening, or you don't want to face uh, something else. So uh, people think about the, the, the telling white lies, but the, the pure white lies that are just for the benefit of individuals, like you, you're like Robin Hood, right? You're, you're suffering for yourself to make the other people better. They are not as common, and in fact, most of them we we benefit with from as well. Um so, so people lie a lot, and we all lie a lot, and and the thing about these these lies is that what we do incredibly well is to lie and then rationalize that what we've done is actually okay. Um and that's an incredible skill. And what's so interesting is that all kinds of things help us to rationalize it. So things like everybody else is doing it is incredibly is incredibly helpful or that entity is deserving. And I'll tell you one uh, one story maybe to kind of um, emphasize that. So um, I own a vending machine, and at some point I put the vending machine at, at the, in one of the big classrooms at MIT, in one of the class buildings at MIT, and I put uh, a sign next to it saying, if the machine is broken, please call this number. And I set the price on the outside to say 75 cents, but on the inside... I set the price to say zero. So that's what would happen is you would put your money in, you would press uh, the button, you would get your candy and the money back because the machine thought that the price was zero. So you get all your money back. <laughs> so first of all, the question is how many people called, and the answer is zero. Nobody called. And how many candies did people take? Most people took three or four candies.
1: Nobody so took most, five. So most people kept hitting the button.
0: That's right kept on putting money in and hitting the button, doing it three or four times. Now, nobody took five, right? Five would be stealing. It would be kind of uh, too much. But three or four people could do and they could rationalize it. And I think that what people did was they said to themselves something like, I remember a vending machine that took my money and didn't give me candy. This machine must be a close relative of that other one. Uh, I'm doing this just as a way to restore my vending karma. So basically, people were able to tell themselves a story about why this is okay. Now, this is pure stealing, right? You're stealing money and candy from somebody. There's no question that it's not your candy. Um, but the ability to rationalize it is so easy that most people did not think of themselves as being thieves even after doing, uh, even after stealing a candy. Now, well, let me ask you this: people, the same people, by the way, would not go to a candy store, to a, a grocery store and steal a candy and go even if they knew they wouldn't get caught. That would feel like stealing. But from the vending machine under those conditions, it felt like that was actually okay.
1: It, well, well, that's interesting. L- let me ask you this. After that experience, like after they essentially steal three candies from your vending machine, are they more likely than uh, later that day or later that week to lie more than if they hadn't? <laughs> Uh, stolen from the vending machine. So is, is lying, in some sense, infectious? So,
0: so first of all, I, I haven't done that experiment. Um, and the question really is, do people think of themselves as liars in that point? By the way, one of the things that they did was they called their friends to participate as well. Um, so, but I think that um, the people who've done that very quickly did not think of themselves as misbehaving i think very quickly they thought of the, they they uh, basically lost all memory of behaving badly and they would think of themselves as being as being angels so um but but what you write about is to the extent that they thought of themselves as uh, behaving badly Uh, then this could have been a starting starting reinforcement mechanism that would get them to behave worse and worse and worse over time. And we do have evidence for this, is that once people start behaving badly, if they know they've behaved badly, they go down a slippery slope. And we find this in the lab, and we also find this in discussions with all kinds of big cheaters, people who've done accounting fraud and insider trading and so on, and what you see in all of those cases is that once people starting start behaving badly, it is becomes easier and easier and easier to take the next step.
1: Well, and it's interesting because if they're rationalizing, if they build this skill, as you call it, of rationalizing that they're not behaving badly, they're not going to anticipate any negative consequences that's right. And so so like with insider trading as an as a great example, you you even mentioned, you know, most people assume they're not going to get caught because they're somehow rationalizing that they're not even behaving badly.
0: Yeah, so we've talked to some some insider traders and and all of them basically said that when they started doing it, they felt that everybody was doing it and that their particular version of insider trading was not as bad as what other people were doing. And one of them even told us that they didn't think about their what they were doing is inside trading, of course, until the FBI caught them, and then they realized it was. But there is this incredible um, reformulation of what we do, and there's a separation between what we do and how we are good people, and our ability to rationalize is just fantastic.
1: So how do you know, again, in, in, in an effort to, for, for let's say, even the listeners to improve their lives, obviously it's better to mostly be honest or, or to at least understand when you're rationalizing uh, being dishonest. How do you work on kind of the reverse scale, understanding when you're rationalizing?
0: So, so this is the this is the point where I'm incredibly grateful that we've come to the end of this hour because uh, this is a really complex uh, question and something that will take a long time uh, to answer. So I'm very happy that we ran out of time. <laughs>
1: Uh, oh, so there's no you, there's no suggestion at all. We, we're doomed to be dishonest.
0: Uh, when when we have another hour, I'll 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 try and uh, help you with that. But but there's certainly not enough time now.
1: Well, it, you know, I do recommend. I think it's a very good book, the honest truth about dishonesty, how we lie to everyone, especially ourselves, which um, I guess came out like almost a year ago, a little more than a year yep. ago. And I highly recommend Predictably Irrational and The Upside of Rationality. We we we've spoken about how this can be used for sales techniques, we how it can be used for self improvement, how it can be used to uh, understand uh, pain and meaning a little bit more. And I think all of these books were, were excellent. Is there any other thing that you would like people to to look at? Uh, no, I'm I'm fine. Dan, thank you very much. I I really appreciate you coming on the show. It's a pleasure talking to you. Take care. Bye. Thanks, Dan. Bye. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today.